Good morning. Today's reading is from Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and 12 through 18. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, a priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Verse 12. Then he turned to see the voice that was speaking. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, thank you, Scott. Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you all. If you're new, welcome. We're glad that you are here. My name is Frank. I am also one of the pastors here. And yes, we get to start the book of Revelation uh, today. And so I'm just going to dive right in. Uh, what we're going to do today is uh, introduce the book as best we can and then work our way through chapter one. So I've been looking forward to this series. I know some of you realize that. I've been talking about it. Um, one of the reasons is I, I've mentioned this a number of times. So many churches will proclaim that they're going to do the book of Revelation, and then they just do the first three chapters. They don't get into four through uh, 22, but we're going to do all 22 chapters. However, we're only doing it in 12 weeks, so we're going to be moving very fast. Some would argue, however, that 12 weeks is the limit that most people's to tolerance has for the book of Revelation, so I think we're right in that sweet spot. Uh, the person who writes the Revelation is John, the apostle. He wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote the three letters of John, and now he writes the book of Revelation, but what he's writing is, is he's just recording 
Jesus' words. So this is really Jesus' book. It's a book about Jesus. It's a book about the things uh, that are to come. And this was written very late in John's life, uh, just like the rest of his writings, uh, written in the late, uh, probably, um, like I said, late in his life, but probably in the early to mid-90s of the first century. And he wrote from the island of Patmos, um, which is several miles off the coast from the uh, church, the city of Ephesus and the church at Ephesus. Um, but he had pastored there for many years, but he was on Patmos because he was exiled for preaching the word of God and for proclaiming the gospel. I actually have a map. I'm very excited. I have a map and my laser pointer, so this is a really good day. Uh, the map stinks, but I ha- my laser pointer is very good. So at any rate, this is the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, Patmos is right here in the middle of the Aegean Sea, and then he's writing to these seven churches. Jesus tells him to write to these seven churches that are in this area of what you might call contemporary uh, Asia Minor. So that'll give you some idea of where we are. This is where Jerusalem and and Israel would be. So uh, this is a hotbed of the late first century early church, and that's why it's taking place there, especially since John ended up being there. So let's talk a little bit about the literary genre of the book of Revelation. It's really a mixture of three genres. It is apocalyptic, it is prophetic, prophecy, and it's a letter. So you have all three of these things mixed together. But as a result, especially because of the apocalyptic nature of Revelation, this book intimidates a lot of people. Uh, Many people will say, no, we're not going to do that book. Let's do something simple like Romans, and it's like... Man, Romans is really complicated, and and yet people would choose Romans over um, Revelation. John Calvin, for instance, the great uh, 15th century, 16th century reformer, he wrote a commentary on every book in the New Testament except for 2nd and 3rd John and the book of Revelation. And many people claim that the reason Calvin avoided writing a, a commentary on Revelation was because he was too intimidated by it. I don't know if I necessarily buy that speculation, but it is possible and, it, and it's easy to understand why he would be intimidated by it. Nevertheless, we should engage the questions. Why is it challenging to understand and why are so many people intimidated by it? Well, we believe the primary reasons it's challenging and a bit intimidating is because of the apocalyptic part of that literary genre. It is is literature known as, as the apocalypse. In scripture, there are many different genres of literature. We teach occasionally a class called Reading the Bible for All It's Worth, and we get much deeper into all the different literary genres that the Bible is written in, but I'll give you just a a quick overview here. It's so important when you're reading the Bible to understand the literature, the the type of literature that you're reading in order to better uh, interpret it. So in the Bible, we find historical narrative, history. So that'd be like if you're reading First or Second Samuel or uh, Chronicles, something like that. We also find poetry. So all of the Psalms are written in a poetic style, but we find poetry in some of the other books as well, including Job and, and of course, the prophets. But then there's prophetic literature. So these are the prophets who are writing, and it's prophetic. It's, it's the idea of taking God's word, looking at what the king or the government is doing, and saying, according to God's word, you're on the wrong track, and this is what's going to happen as a result. But the Uh, prophets often write in a poetic way to get their point across, but they also use narrative as well. Then there's just plain old narrative, which would be like the book of Acts in the New Testament. 
Then there's gospel. Gospel is actually a separate literary genre. Some people call the gospels in the Bible biographies of Jesus, but they're really not. They are gospels because they focus specifically on those three years of Jesus proclaiming the good news of who he is. Thus, they are known as gospels. So it's a it's a very selective biography of Jesus. Then there are epistles and letters, so Romans, 1 John, James, Hebrews. There's legal literature, primarily found in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, also known as the books of Moses. Then there's wisdom literature, so that would be like Job and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and even Song of Solomon is considered wisdom literature. And then finally, there is apocalyptic literature. Revelation is apocalyptic literature. Daniel chapters 7 through 12 is apocalyptic literature. Um, A lot of people love the book of Daniel for the first six chapters because it's historical narrative and they're great stories. But then you get into chapter 7 through 12 and and people just get lost. And I understand why that is. The word apocalypse, as it relates to this literature, literally means to reveal, to rip off the lid, to unveil, or, uh, this maybe is my favorite, to uncover something unseen but real. To uncover something unseen but real. So specifically in Revelation, we are told that Revelation is written to let us know what will take place. And so this becomes a very important point of this whole 12-week series. It's so important. Firmly plant your minds in this space for the next 12 weeks. Revelation is about preparing, not predicting. The book of Revelation is not about predicting. It's about preparing. Here's another way of saying it. The new Jerusalem is coming. Jesus is coming. He's going to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the new Jerusalem. And that has already been planned. All the planning for the new Jerusalem has been taken care of. Nobody in this room or anywhere else is on the planning committee for the second coming of Jesus. No one. So those of you who are event coordinators and event planners and all of that, I'm sorry you're disinvited to this. But we are, if you are in Christ, we are part of the welcoming committee. We are called to be a part of the welcoming committee. The other reason Revelation is challenging and intimidating is because of all the symbolism or signs. And symbolism is a characteristic, a common characteristic of apocalyptic literature. And the book of Revelation, there are many images that represent or symbolize other things. And in order to understand this symbolism, we must study the historical context and the rhetorical styles and strategies of that time period. So we must study and understand the imagery. For instance, why is the number seven so important? And what's the dragon and the beasts and the seals and the trumpets and the bowls and the plagues? And is 666 really a thing? Now, one other thing that makes the book a challenge to us is that there are no direct quotes from the Old Testament in Revelation, but there are many, many, many allusions to Old Testament writings, especially in the prophets. And so it's really helpful for you to know the Old Testament when reading Revelation and trying to interpret uh, the Revelation. So uh, what I want to get at in this introduction is to make sure that you understand that with good study, And with diligent analysis, we can not only get a handle on it, 
but we can also understand it and embrace it, and we can rejoice in it. So apocalyptic is the primary literary genre, but remember, it's also prophetic. We saw in the reading today that this is the prophecy that is to come, so it's prophetic as well, and then it is a letter. So it's a mixture of all three of these genres. But the part that makes it challenging to us is especially the apocalyptic. Here's just very generally a chapter breakdown as we go through the next 12 weeks. Today is chapter one, which is John's encounter with the resurrected Jesus and a call to start writing this book. Chapters two and three are the seven letters to the seven churches, which are dealing with challenges and issues. What church in history was spared from having to deal with stuff? So these seven letters are very applicable to us today, very relevant. Then chapters 4 through 18 are several different visions that help make up the last revelation of all that happens in the final battle between good and evil and sets the stage for the coming of the new uh, Jerusalem. And believe it or not, in chapters 4 through 18, there is also plenty to apply to us today in the 21st century. The trick with Revelation is to understand it in its historical, literary, and cultural context and then bridge that gap to what it means for us today as we do with the Bible in every other section of the Bible as well. Chapters 19 and 20 are the final battle and then chapters 21 and 22 are the new heavens and the new earth. It's Jesus returning the second coming of Christ, to usher in the new Jerusalem. And the new Jerusalem, of course, is a place where I would think we would want to be because we are told that the new Jerusalem, there will be no more sin, no more darkness, no more tears, no more pain, but rather glorious eternal life with great purpose and joy. And so now we're just going to jump right in. Those first three verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now you see in those first three verses the word soon. And I think we have to talk about the word soon, and we have to define the word soon. My question is always, how many biblical years in a biblical soon? I mean, what does that mean, even? And some people will say, it's not years, it's how many months, or oh, it's how many hours, whatever, depending on it. This is a really important question to answer. And the key here is that the Greek word that's translated soon does not point to or refer to an amount of time but rather it points to the idea that when something does happen, we need to be prepared for it to happen because it could happen at any moment. Jesus could return in five minutes or he could return in five millennia. Either way, it's going to happen soon and we need to be ready for it. That's our call. Our call is not to determine when it is. Our call is to determine how we should get prepared. When I was just a little kid, um, my mom would get on the telephone and we, we grew up very poor. We didn't have internet in our household when I was growing up. Anyway, we, we had one of these 
rotary phones, okay, so it's the only way she could contact the outside world. So she'd get on the phone and she'd be talking to somebody, and I'm five or six years old, and I got stuff to do, and I'm busy, and, and I need her attention, and I need her help with something. So I, how many of you are parents, and, and drives you crazy when your kids are bugging you when you're on the phone, okay? They leave you alone, then you get on the phone, and instantly, they, anyway, so that was me, and I'd go to her, and I'd say, I'd start to let her know I needed to talk to her, and she would look at me, and she'd say, I'll be off soon. Okay, my understanding of soon as a six-year-old is 15 seconds. Her understanding of soon is anywhere from five minutes to 30 minutes. And let me tell you something, that five minutes felt like an eternity. So you can you understand what's going on here? And oh, by the way, just as a little PS to that story, my mom was an expert at fake ending phone calls. You know what I'm talking about? She said, well, it's just so good to talk to you. Oh, Oh, yeah, yeah, I did run into him, yes, and it was so great to see, and then she's off on another 15 minutes, she's driving me crazy, I'm like, she's going to hang up, and anyway, so maybe Jesus is up there kind of going, well, it's time, not really, okay, so you just have to get used to the fact that we're not in control of when Jesus is coming back, and then verse 3, it says, those who read aloud these words are going to be blessed, this is a blessing, it's one of the many blessings discussed in Revelation, it's a blessing that we're doing this series. And the word blessing means to give somebody joy and happiness. And so again, on Tuesday mornings here in the sanctuary, we are going to read through for the next 12 weeks, we're going to read through the book of Genesis over and over and over uh, during that half hour on Tuesday mornings. But it's also not just enough to hear it as we see in these verses. We must be moved to action. And, and, and that action that we're moved to is to be prepared for Jesus to return. Remember, belief precedes action. And our actions demonstrate our belief. If we say that we believe that Jesus is coming, we are going to be prepared for him to come. And then similar to soon, at the end of this paragraph, um, what does it mean that the time is near? And again, this Greek word <clears throat> translated as time is not the word, I'm sorry, chronos, which means chronological time, but it's the Greek word kairos, which means opportunity or readiness. So the time is near means that everything is needed, everything is actually in place to set the stage for Jesus' second coming. It's ready. And I know some of you are like, well, then why doesn't he come? I don't know, but it is ready. Kairos is an ancient Greek agricultural term that means that the harvest is ready to be reaped. And as we get into that harvest language later in the book of Revelation, one of the things that we should understand about that word harvest and what is going on during the harvest is that it's not just that people are going to be saved and that people are going to be taken up with Jesus, but the harvest also means a purging of that which is not worth harvesting, that which is not um, part of the kingdom of God. So it's both salvation and judgment. So when you see that word judge, uh, salvation, I'm sorry, harvest, in the book of Revelation, there is also judgment attached to that. And I know that's not a favorite word in our culture today, but you're going to see that quite a bit throughout uh, the book of Revelation. And so we need to be prepared. So are we ready for Jesus to come? And it's not like, like what I say all the time. I am so sick of this world. Anybody else sick of this world? I'm sick of this world. It's just, it just seems to be so messed up. But that's not really preparation. That's just whining. Now, I'm not, I'm not throwing whining under the bus. I think whining is fun, and it has its place. Okay. <laughs> However, 
Whining is not preparing. We need, to, we need to be moving from whining to actually preparing as well. We need to be prepared, okay? And how do we prepare? It's just the New Testament says you need to know him and know his will and then submit your life to that. That's how you prepare, okay? And then here's one other question that we need to deal with in this first paragraph. There's an angel speaking to John in this first paragraph, and later Jesus speaks to John. So is this an angel who's giving all these words to John, or is it Jesus? This is actually a major question, and believe it or not, it's one of the most difficult things in the entire book of Revelation for scholars to figure out. And I actually made the mistake of going down that rabbit hole for two hours during my study trying to figure this out. And I got absolutely nowhere. So I learned my lesson, okay? Um, it's very confusing. It's mysterious. I, trusted all, I, I, I consulted all of my trusted resources, never found a final answer, never found a definitive answer. But that's okay because it did remind me that we need to be careful when talking about the book of Revelation we need to be careful of asserting final answers. There are times when we can do that. This is for sure what this means. But there are other things in the book of Revelation where we need caution, and certainly we need humility to be able to say, this may be what it means, but it could mean something else. We're not 100% sure. So some claim that the angel is Jesus. I'm not sure I buy that. Others claim that there's two different, but really Jesus takes over later on in chapter one. And then most people just say, it doesn't really matter because whether it's an angel or Jesus, they both represent Jesus and that's what it matters. They both are representing God, so that's what matters. So I tried to answer that question for us. That's the best we could do, so we're moving on now. Verses four through seven. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. So verse four says, these are the seven churches. We're gonna get to those seven letters, those individual letters to each church next week. It also says here that Jesus is and was and is to come. In other words, Jesus is sovereign and eternal. He is God. And then it says the seven spirits before Jesus' throne. What are the seven spirits? The seven spirits are a manifestation or a representation of the one Holy Spirit. But the reason it's described as seven is because the number seven denotes perfection and holiness. It, it denotes completion. And so the Holy Spirit, like Jesus and like the Father, is perfect and holy and divine. He's God. And then verse five, Jesus is called the faithful witness. His crucifixion and his resurrection is a witness and a testimony to the sovereignty, authority, love, and grace of God. And he is the firstborn of the dead. Two things there. His resurrection cleared up once for all the ancient question of if there is a resurrection of the dead. And the answer is yes, there is. And second of all, because he is the firstborn of the dead, he has the privilege of sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's his privileged place, which then makes him the ruler of all kings on earth. That's what it says in that paragraph. Jesus is the ruler of all 
kings. So I would love to just sit down with Donald Trump and Joe Biden and Putin, get them all in the same room, and, by the way, probably the most important one, Meghan Markle. I'd like to get them all in the same room, okay, and just say, you're nothing. Jesus is Lord over you. He is king over you. He's sovereign and authority over, and, and has authority over everything, every construct of government or totalitarianism, no, no matter if it's a Caesar or king or prime minister, or president, the Supreme Court, Judge Judy, no matter what it is. And of course, he is king over Satan. And we're going to see that later on in this book as well. And then here you go. Jesus freed us from sins by his blood. I've talked about this in the past. I get to talk about it again right now. There are those in the church, the church. I've spoken to pastors of churches who push back on the idea of blood atonement. We don't teach blood atonement at our church. The reason is because blood atonement is too violent and too offensive for a loving God. A loving God would never demand blood atonement. So you're not teaching the Bible then. Because blood atonement is from Genesis through all the way through till the very end. And, and Jesus was the perfect blood atonement sacrifice on the cross for our sins. And Jesus said, it is by this blood that you are forgiven of your sins. This is the new covenant. And then he said on the cross, it is finished. And then verse 6, to me, is just incredible. If you're in Christ, you are part of a kingdom, and he has made us a kingdom. There is something different and imperial about being a follower of Christ and being a part of his church. We are a kingdom, and it's the only kingdom that truly matters. Don't ever discount the fact that you and I are part of God's kingdom. And he made us priests. You know, in the Old Testament, in order to be a priest, you had to be born into it. You had to be born a Levite. Well, now in the New Testament, you just are born again. If you're in Christ, you are now called also to be a priest. Here's how Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, as a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a kingdom, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. And so you have a ministry. You may not work at a church, but you have a ministry. I mentioned this last week. You have a ministry to your family, to your friends, at work, in your neighborhood. And then verse 7. I want to reread verse 7 just so that we get the weight of this. Behold, Jesus is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. In other words, this will happen. No one can avoid it. Everyone will see it. And those who know Jesus will have some measure, I believe, of trepidation, but also a great measure of assurance and confidence and joy that he's coming. But those that don't know Jesus are going to be stuck in that quandary of, oh, wow, this is real, and I've been rejecting it 
all my life. And that is a frightening place to be. And the reason I say that is not because I think so, but because the book of Revelation will unpack that for us later. And then verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. Um, He's the beginning and the end. He's eternal. And also, we need to remember, there is nothing that we know that God doesn't know, and yet there are many things that we don't know that God does know. And for whatever reason, this reminded me of something that many of you actually got me in touch with uh, this last summer, as well as friends from the Midwest, the camp up in Iowa, They texted me and emailed me this as well. Uh, I am not here to promote Joe Rogan's podcast. I'm not. So just if if Joe Rogan upsets you or whatever, you know, I get it, okay? But he had on a guy named Stephen Meyer on episode 2008, and here's the, if you want to use the QR code to find this episode. It's three hours and 10 minutes long, so it's long. But let me tell you something. I listened to it, and it was worth every minute of listening to this guy, Stephen Meyer. I am telling you, you should listen to this three-hour podcast, okay? It'll blow your mind what Meyer talks about. He is a Christian, but he refuses to use uh, the Bible. Here, I'll get out of the way, that QR code. He refuses to use the Bible um, in his argumentation for intelligent design. He's telling Rogan all of the science is pointing towards it. And I'm telling you, if you're not a science person and you listen to this, it's going to blow your mind, the advances that uh, supposedly evolutionary science has made in this area. I would highly recommend it. God is on the move. God is on the move. Now, verses 9 through 11. Enough with Joe Rogan. 9 through 11. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that, you are, that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Tyra, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So now this is Jesus speaking to John. We're going to see more of that in just a minute. And now the seven churches are identified and we're going to get to those individual letters next Sunday. And John says, I was, on this, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. John was in prayer. That's what that means. And he was on Patmos on account of the word and the testimony of Jesus. So he had been banished, persecuted, and imprisoned on the island of Patmos for preaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. That's it. That was his crime. And then look at verse 9. He says that you, brothers and sisters, and I, we are partners in this by virtue of being in Christ. We are partners. We are partners in the kingdom of God. Hallelujah, my brothers and sisters. Come on now, bring it. Yes, and we are also partners in tribulation. And yeah, and patient endurance. See, we're partners in all of it, okay? We are a part of the kingdom of God and we celebrate, but it's also part and parcel of the fact that we have to live in this fallen and corrupt world. But we have Jesus with us and the Holy Spirit in us. And that's, and that's good news. It's all part of the deal. Then, 12 through 16, John's description of Jesus. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And then in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. 
His eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in, in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So here we go. All kinds of symbolism to describe Jesus. Now, we know it's Jesus. We have the benefit of knowing that this is the Bible, and it's 2,000 years later. We've got that figured out. But in their day, this is what's known as subversive language. It's language designed as an attempt to fly under the radar of the Roman government. Um, The last thing that Christians wanted uh, the Roman government or the Caesar in Rome to know was that they were not worshiping Caesar. They did not believe that Caesar was Lord over them, but they believed that Jesus was because they would send out the Roman Praetorian and kill you if that were the case. And so, but they needed to be able to write these letters. And so there's this tension between using this subversive language that maybe the Romans wouldn't quite get, but also using language that their audiences would fully understand in their context. This is a common way of writing in the late first century. So um, the thing about it is that it's not that hard. And this represents a lot of the imagery and the symbolism that we'll see in the rest of the book of, of, of Revelation. And I'm arguing that it's not that hard. And I'm going to show you that I don't think it's that hard. Some of you know that occasionally I like to tinker with or update scripture in terms of the language just to make a point. So I have a modern day version of verses 12 through 16. And just see if you can't figure out who this is describing. I looked and I saw, standing 67 inches high, in the midst of three golden globes, one who was clothed in a flight suit and holding a golden helmet in his hand. The hairs on his head were perfectly quaffed, his eyes laser-focused, and his crooked smile already a legend. His last name is actually Mapather, and his feet are often seen running in YouTube videos. His voice, well, it simulated the average 61-year-old Caucasian man. In his right hand, he held seven completed dossiers, and from his mouth came the desperate words, talk to me, goose. Finally, his face was still quite handsome in spite of his commitment to doing his own stunts. Anybody? I thought it was uh, Ryan Gosling. Okay, yeah, Tom Cruise. Okay, you got it. See, it's not that hard. Okay, and you're going, but that's easy. This is obvious. Yes, (laughs) it's obvious to those in the church, in the churches that are receiving this letter. Not so obvious to somebody that doesn't know anything about Jesus. In 500 years, if somebody read this, um, I don't think that anybody's going to go, Tom Cruise. They're going to have to do some research. They're going to have to figure it out. So now let's do some work. What do all these things stand for or, or symbolize? So here you go. Seven golden lampstands are the seven churches that John will write to on behalf of Jesus. But because it's seven, the number of completion and perfection, it represents all churches of all time. So we are included in that. The number seven is completion, totality, and perfection. So this book is written to us today as well. And, and, and we, we need to understand that as Jesus stands in the midst of those churches, he stands in the midst of our church today as well. Then the Son of Man. Son of Man is Jesus' preferred self-designation as the Messiah in the Gospels. In the book of Daniel, the Son of Man is the one who rules over all kingdoms of heaven and earth. And then he has a long robe with a golden sash. The long robe uh, signifies that Jesus is the high priest, and the gold sash signifies that Jesus is royalty. He's the king. And then his white hair. It's a sign of infinite divine wisdom and holiness. 
He has eyes like fire. Jesus clearly sees through all of our facades, our deception, and our malarkey. And we might use a different term if we weren't Sunday morning in church for all of that. His feet are burnished bronze. In other words, Jesus is able to judge and destroy all wickedness, and he will crush Satan under his feet. He has a voice like the roaring of many waters. This is a common expression throughout Revelation as well. When Jesus speaks, there is no doubt it is the voice of the Almighty. And in his right hand, he held the seven stars. These seven stars are the messengers or the bishops, or maybe you might say the lead pastors of these seven churches. And notice that Jesus holds them in his hand. You see, pastors are not on their own, nor are they pastors under their own authority. We are held by and under the authority of Jesus. And then out of his mouth is a two-edged sword. God's words are true, loving, and dangerous. It's like Aslan in Narnia. The description of Aslan in Narnia is, he is not safe, but he is good. And then he has a face shining like the sun. This is perhaps an allusion to Moses when he came down uh, from being in the presence on Mount Sinai, the presence of, of Yahweh. Jesus is God, and he's always in the presence of the Father, and so that might be why his face is shining. And next week when we look at these seven letters, you're going to see uh, different parts of these description of Jesus used to introduce each of these seven letters. Finally, the last four verses, 17 through 20. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and I'm the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, the messengers, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. 17a, John fell when he realized it was Jesus. He fell as though dead at his feet. I would argue that's the only appropriate response when you encounter Jesus. But also look at Jesus' response to John's response. He is the creator, God, Lord of the universe. And he bends down to place his hand on John. That is a beautiful picture of the loving, graceful, and merciful Lord that we worship and that we know. I I love that verse. And verses 17b and, and through 18 is why we have hope and know that we are recipients of God's grace. So as we close, let me just mention this. Notice already all the sevens. So again, the number represents completion or perfectness, perfection, holiness, and eternity. So let's get this out of the way right now. Some of you know I mentioned 666 earlier, and you're like, oh, why didn't he stop and talk about it? Well, I'm going to talk about it right now, just so you know. You don't have to wait till chapter 13. But in chapter 13, we have 666. So what does that mean? The number six represents a fragmented seven, an imperfect seven. It's not a whole seven. It's a damaged seven. So the number six actually represents evil. And then when you put three sixes together, it is exponential evil of a kind that you and I have never seen, experienced, or know of in our life. And it's the kind of evil, it's the kind of evil that only God can defeat. Only God can defeat. That's what 666 represents. So the intro is done. John has his marching orders. And next week, we're going to look at those seven, each of those seven letters. Let's pray together. 
Our Father God, we thank you for your word and its truth and for this book that you have recorded for us through your son and through John. And God, I just pray for your wisdom and your humility as we go through this book, these 12 weeks that we are on this. I pray that you will uh, give us insight that will encourage us, but also insight that will help us to understand the world that we live in today and why it is the way we live uh, today. God, we thank you for who you are. We praise you and we love you for who you are. Thank you. We thank you for your son Jesus and what he's done for us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, who is a huge part of communicating this book to us. And we thank you for your word. God, we pray that we would be humble enough to submit ourselves to your will, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.